Hey guys. I'd like to continue a discussion that I began on my channel a few months ago about group dynamics. I've linked my former video relating to this and about purity spirals below. Why groupthink appeals to us, how to avoid it, and I even question whether or not it's a bad thing. Some level of collectivism seems unavoidable, and society would be largely unmanageable if each and every individual was a natural-born leader whose greatest focus was to uphold individuality. Most people are crushed under the weight of individuality and want to be led. Can you imagine what that would be like? A world filled with type A nutjobs and natural born leaders. Further, we seek human contact and we want to be part of groups. We have tribalistic proclivities to protect and to conform and to seek approval from our in-group. This is a difficult subject to develop an opinion on without some accompanying cognitive dissonance. I advocate individualism and meritocracy, but also am an advocate of nationalism, patriotism, traditionalism, which are definitely types of collectivist thinking. Although I would argue that these values can exist while promoting the tenets of individualism. No matter the conclusion about this conundrum, turning it over in my mind has made me reflect on the groups that I've belonged to, have wanted to belong to, and that I've been rejected from, which led to me doing some research about the general psychology of not fitting in, and ultimately the qualities of leaders and mentally tough people. But first, I wanted to find out how deep do our in-group, out-group biases go? How superficial are we really? How much of this is innate and social? A day after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., a third grade teacher decided to teach her students about racial prejudice by dividing the class into two groups, the blue-eyed children and the brown-eyed children. She initially made the blue-eyed children the superior group by giving them extra privileges, such as longer recesses. After splitting up the groups, the blue-eyed children began to ridicule the brown-eyed children. The next day, she made the brown-eyed children the superior group, and the same thing occurred except with the roles reversed. This experiment gives us some profound insight into human nature and group dynamics. Although the intent was to mimic race relations, what this really shows us is that we experience in-group and out-group preferences, sometimes based exclusively on social, external impositions, not necessarily something as ingrained or innate as race and religion, although those are obviously huge factors in developing group dynamics. And you can go to any high school and see this in a group of girls. A small transgression or inconsequential characteristic may cause a girl to be shunned by all of her friends, and some of the lower status girls may use it as an opportunity to come up. These are tactics for social safety and are expressions of conformity. We do this because it reinforces our place within an in-group, or ideally elevates us, and ensures our stability and status within the group. Most people realize this dynamic pretty early in school. You can lead, which is a greater responsibility and will require additional work and risk, but potentially more protection and status. You can follow, which reduces your level of social and personal responsibility, but also limits your role in decision making and your social power. Or you can kind of exist on the fringe, you have neither power nor responsibility. I tried all of these tactics navigating public school in St. Louis, which was surprisingly socially competitive, and I ended up settling on this fringe option. I've heard similar stories from many people that I've interacted with in the realm of alternative media. I hear people say this very frequently, that they've always felt like they didn't fit in, that they dropped out of school, that they were loners, that people always thought they were weird. And I'm sure that some of this is just ever-present insecurity and is simply part of the human condition. But some of it isn't, and I couldn't help but wonder if people that are willing to accept being socially ostracized in the quest to find truth are more resistant to the psychological and physiological effects of social alienation, which we know are abundant. This is outlined in a study called The Perceived Social Isolation and Cognition, which I've linked below. 
Homo sapiens, an irrepressibly meaning-making species, are in normal circumstances dramatically affected by perceived social isolation. Research indicates that perceived social isolation, i.e. loneliness, is a risk factor for and may contribute to poor overall cognitive performance, faster cognitive decline, poor executive functioning, more negativity and depressive cognition, heightened sensitivity to social threats, a confirmatory bias in social cognition that is self-protective and paradoxically self-defeating, heightened anthropomorphism, and contagion that threatens social cohesion. These differences in attention and cognition impact emotions, decisions, behaviors, and interpersonal interactions that may contribute to the association between loneliness and cognitive decline and between loneliness and morbidity more generally. So if we want to be part of an in-group because there are so many negative aspects to social alienation, what causes people to want to be leaders and to accept these consequences or be resistant to these consequences in the pursuit of some higher ideological purpose? I always think about Ann Coulter when I'm contemplating this, but I know I bring her up in like every video. <laughs> she thinks her opposition hating her with every fiber of their being is simply hilarious. She was trending nationally this week on Twitter for some off-color joke that she made, and she didn't even address it on her Twitter. She just continued to tweet about other stuff. And I genuinely think that she did not care at all that thousands and thousands of leftists were saying the worst possible things about her. She isn't just resistant to in-group rejection and ridicule. I'm pretty sure she can just live on it and doesn't even need food or water. Are some people simply genetically, emotionally hardier than others, allowing them to champion a cause or many causes that makes them unpopular despite the social consequences? I came across this very fascinating twin study called A Behavioral Genetic Study of Mental Toughness and Personality, and I've linked it below. The present study is the first behavioral genetic investigation of mental toughness, as measured by the 48-item Mental Toughness Questionnaire and the first BG investigation of relationships between mental toughness and the big five factors of personality. Participants were 219 pairs of adult, identical, and fraternal twins from across North America. Twin study methodology was used to determine the extent to which genes and or environmental factors contributed to individual differences in mental toughness and also to determine the genetic and or environmental basis of any relationship between mental toughness and personality. Mental toughness has recently been defined by Clough, Earl, and Sewell. These researchers developed a definition of mental toughness based on the established psychological concept known as the hardy personality that was first proposed by Kubasa. Hardiness consists of three main components. Control, the ability to feel and act as if one is in control of various life situations. Commitment, the tendency to involve rather than distance oneself from whatever one is doing. And challenge, the ability to understand that change is normal. Although many models of personality have been proposed, currently the most widely accepted is the Big Five theory. The five-factor model includes extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, openness to experience, and neuroticism. These five factors of personality have been found to account for the majority of individual differences that exist between people in most personality traits. The study provides insight into a newly defined construct called mental toughness, a trait that many, especially those in the sports domain, have been attempting to strengthen for many years via coaching and training. The results of our study indicate that because mental toughness is quite heritable, it may be more difficult to strengthen or modify one's overall mental toughness than many people in the sports domain suggest. Instead, it may be easier to strengthen certain components of mental toughness such as commitment or control, the two subscales with the lowest heritabilities. So the genetic correlations tended to be stronger than the environmental correlations when analyzing mental toughness, such as challenge, types of control, and types of confidence. But with regard to commitment and control over life, those were more environmentally linked, thus more able to be changed through action. 
There are people that have this benefit of genetic mental toughness paired with environmental factors like developing commitment and control that are able to use their mental toughness to develop a near-complete resistance to the damage of social alienation. People like this fall into leadership positions because they can handle them. But we do know from this study that at least a few of the qualities essential to being a good leader can be improved upon in the general population. I think that this is how we can support individualism and meritocracy while still benefiting from the healthy aspects of community and to some degree collectivism. We, as a society, as a culture, develop a high level of learned mental toughness through education and help develop the qualities of commitment and control within the general population. Remember, the study defines commitment as the tendency to involve rather than distance oneself from whatever one is doing. They define control as the ability to feel and act as if one is in control of various life situations. This is precisely what is absent from millennials. They're disengaged and feel like they have to control their environments because they cannot control their lives, which is why we see so much speech policing on college campuses. And although there is a notable hereditary component to mental toughness and more generally to leadership, if the broader population was successful in improving those parts of their baseline mental toughness, there would still be a group of natural-born leaders and a group of followers, as it should be. But both groups would have a higher level of baseline mental toughness. The concept of a natural-born leader does have a scientific basis, but the vast majority of people cannot handle being in leadership positions, especially women. Some of these people can develop skills that will help them succeed in leadership roles, but the best leaders will be those that have the set of heritable qualities that help them cope with social alienation and that have developed those qualities that help improve their mental fitness. We live in a society that encourages hyper-individualism, but most people just want to conform. This is why we see manifestations of hyper-individualism morph into symbols of conformity. This is really clear in the body modification realm, tattoos, piercings, pink hair, whatever. These people are fulfilling a pathological desire to express their individualism because that's what society is telling them they should be doing, while still cowering under the protection of conformity, since most people now have some form of body modification. For a society to function properly, the appropriate balance between individualism and collectivism must be struck. Individuals must feel like they and their interests matter and there must be meritocracy in all industries or they will fail, but individuals also have to have a larger group that they're bonded to in order for a society to be cohesive. Let me know what you think in the comment section. What is the larger overarching social goal that we need to share in order for us to feel like we belong to the same group? Or is it just certain group characteristics that need to be shared? Should we value the individual above all else, or is collectivism the key for a functional society? Thanks for watching. I'm taking a trip from the 4th to the 15th, and I've promised during that whole time not to do any work. But I have a hard time believing that I'll be able to keep my mouth shut when I see what Paris looks like. So we'll see. I think I'll, I'll be tweeting for sure. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in a few weeks. Bye.